I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, we have our Week in Review with writer Scott Cipollina. That's coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, August 6, 2021. You know, I think I'm going to try this week in review on Fridays. I was going to do it on the weekends, but I was like, you know, it just makes more sense like Friday instead of on a Saturday or Sunday. And well, that's the joy of having a small business or a startup is that you can play around to see what works and see what fits. Sometimes uh, the listener gets annoyed because he's like, hey, you know, what, my, what I, I listen to every day, this is to be the same consistent. So I hope you don't get annoyed with me for trying new things and trying to create a better product for you. But if you do get annoyed, or if you think it's a better product, or if you just want to get feedback, please send me an email, MatthewAaron at Decrypt.co. I would love to hear, hear from you because I'm always trying to think of new ways to engage and new ways to provide this information. But before we get into those crypto prices, I have to answer a listener question. This question comes from Will. Will says, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to you every day on my drive home from work. My question is pretty simple, I think. And maybe you've answered this in the past, but I haven't heard it. When it comes to making long-term investments, one year or more, right? How does the long-term investment clock actually work? For instance, if on January 1st, I bought some Bitcoin and some shares of AMC. Then one month later, in February, I bought some more Bitcoin and AMC shares. And then again in March, April, May, and June. Does the one-year term investment clock now reset from June of next year, or does the countdown start from January 1st when I first invested? I'm trying to get some clarity on this, so that when I decide to sell any of my investments, shares, or crypto assets, I know what I'm getting into tax-wise. Thank you, and keep up the good work. Will, we reached out to Jeff Benson, writer from Decrypt, to answer your question. Hi, Will. Uh, I think what you're referring to is long-term versus short-term capital gains taxes. So essentially, if you buy one Bitcoin on January 1st and another Bitcoin on March 1st, the first Bitcoin will become a long-term investment the following January and be eligible for long-term capital gains taxes, which are lower than short-term capital gains taxes. That second Bitcoin will become a long-term investment the following March, one year later. In practice, however, this can get pretty complicated. So if, say, the price of Bitcoin shoots up on the 2nd of January and then declines on March 2nd, you might be in a position to take a capital loss on one asset and a gain on the other. You could cash out the March 1st asset first to offset the capital gains on the January 1st Bitcoin. So essentially, uh, if you were to have a big pot of money with all of these dollar bills in it, you wouldn't care which dollar bill you gave to who. But with Bitcoin, you do care which Bitcoin you are cashing out. So you can use a number of different tax methods. You can use first in, first out, but you could also do things like uh, highest in, first out. So that would be a tax strategy that would seek the lowest capital gains possible. I am not a tax expert and I'm not a tax advisor, so this isn't financial advice, but there are any number of programs and and applications that you can use to track your cryptocurrency taxes, and they will automate this process for you. Thank you for that answer, Jeff. And Will, 
pay attention to the show because I do have a tax expert that's going to clarify that even more. And just to clarify what Jeff said, those accounting practices are LIFO and FIFO and also HIFO. Last in, first out, first in, first out, and highest in, first out. Now, to those crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. And I'm recording this at 1120 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $41,506, up 5.93%. Let's just call it 6%, Matt. Let's just call it 6%. Ethereum at $2,800, up, well, 0.7% in 24. Teller's in the number three spot. Binance Coin is at 338, up 2%. And Cardano's number five at 0.6%. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, USDC, Dogecoin, Polkadot, and Uniswap. Wow, that changed quite a bit. Where did BUSD go? It's in number 11. Chainlinks, number 13. Bitcoin Cash, 14. Litecoin, 15. There we go. Total market cap, we're at $1.69 trillion. About to hit that 1.7. And a BTC dominance of 46.1%. Ethereum dominance, 19.4. Now let's get into that week in review with writer from Decrypt, Scott Cipollina. I'm good, Matthew. Thanks for having me. 100% 100% man today is our week in review there's a lot of stuff that happened this week and look we're going to talk about a couple of things today first let's talk about Robinhood one week yeah. after IPO bro Robinhood going IPO was big not only for for the retail stock investor or the retail investor but also for the crypto space man what happened with the IPO yeah well actually Robin for all the um you know positive sentiment that surrounded the anticipation that surrounded that IPO um Robin had actually one of the worst IPOs for a company of its size in recent memory. Debuted at about $38. It closed the day, its debut day at 34. I think it's hit a, a you know a high of just over 70. Um, and now it's about checking the figures now, it's just under $51. Consensus there pretty much is that it's one of the most underwhelming um, IPOs of a company the size of Robinhood in recent memory, as I said. And one of the sort of biggest sub-highlights of the story over the last week was that Nasdaq actually halted trading of its stock for a while on Wednesday, the, the 4th of August, because it was just too volatile. It's called, technically, it's called a volatility trading pause. And it just means that the stock was too, well, it couldn't be traded because of too serious of a, a rise or fall in price. And obviously, in this case, uh, a drop really of sorts. So yeah, that's that's pretty much the the summary and the headlines that, that have surrounded Robinhood for the last week. Wait, 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 underwhelming. So wait, the IPO was for $38. Yes, it dropped to like uh, 34, 33, 32, somewhere around there. But then it popped to like 77, if I think it was all time high. And this was only in a week. Why is this underwhelming to double your market cap like in a week? Yeah, well, I think it's because, um, you know, when, when we look back at Robinhood over the last few months and, there were, you know, it was at the center of a lot of, especially within the crypto community, that it was at the center of a lot of like high profile stories with, you know, the, the GameStop controversy and AMC and, and obviously, you know, it, it's it's um, this thing of Dogecoin as well. All these things were, you know, they generated a lot of clicks, a lot of attention in the crypto space. But then when Robinhood went public, it turned out that, you know, investors were perhaps less interested in actually investing in the company itself. Um, so I think really, you know, on the ground, the expectation was that we'd be seeing higher numbers here. That's pretty much, I think, the, to capture people's feelings as to why this was perhaps a little bit underwhelming. That's interesting because I felt like it was it was a good launch. Uh, maybe it's just a, a diff- different uh, ways to look at it because if I'm juxtaposing that with the Coinbase launch, uh, Coinbase just went down after their um, yeah. direct listing. I mean, they didn't even, I, I think, I, and full disclosure, I huddled some Coinbase. I bought it at uh, direct listing and I, my average mm. cost is, what, 328 because I, you know, just bought the dip and it just kept yeah. on dipping. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, of course. I think that's just obviously, I mean, if you look at just the first 24 hours, its debut, right? I think it's what, just off the top of my head, I think it was about an 8 or 9% drop from its debut price. I mean, that that is not something that, obviously, you know, the first day of trading is not necessarily something that we have to read too much into. I think a lot of people that maybe are reporting on the fact that Robinhood had a bit of an underwhelming debut on the NASDAQ, they don't necessarily believe that Robinhood is going to fail as a company or anything drastic like that, you know. Um, but I think that just the fact over the first week and over the first day specifically, stock prices were just a tad underwhelming, really. And I think that that was, you know, the, the, the fundamental point a lot of people were making. Speaking of trading, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is over $40,000. You know, we were all kind of nervous. Are we going into another bear market? Is this a mini bear? I mean, is it going sideways? And now it's popped over 40 again. Is this bullish? Is this bearish? What's happening with Bitcoin? Yeah, well, I mean, if we look at Bitcoin's price, obviously, you know, these fundamentally, I suppose they don't necessarily mean very much, but it's, it, it is a, a newsworthy slash notice, noticeable story when Bitcoin breaks a, a 10K barrier, in this case, obviously 40. Um, and if we look at the last week, it's been relatively stable. It's only increased by about 2% over the last seven days. Um, it's experienced a bit of a bump today, about 7%. Um, but of course, you know, Bitcoin is currently embroiled in a lot of um, you know, various controversies and something that we'll get to in a minute is the infrastructure bill out in the United States. So um, I think that at this point, you know, as I always say when I come on this podcast, it's hard to speculate and something that we always say to crypto is never listen to anybody who claims that they have the answers as to where the direction of any given cryptocurrency's price is going to go in the future. But it's definitely a, uh, a challenging period for, for, for Bitcoin, I'd say, at the minute with everything that's going on, that obviously it's getting involved into, for example, the infrastructure bill that, you know, as I said, I'm sure we'll talk about that now in a minute. Yeah, but I guess when I'm looking at the price, you know, we, we do see that a lot of people are talking like stock to flow and models and looking at what the future of Bitcoin is going to hold. Look, everything is mm. seem to be just aligning for what Bitcoin is expected to do. Obviously, we're going to have some dips and some bumps in the road along the way, but this seems like a turnaround for the, I guess the skeptics could take a, look, a second look at Bitcoin and go, hey, maybe we're not in a bear market. Maybe we are moving toward the, I guess, predicted future of Bitcoin, which is that 100K or 200K mark. I feel that this is a bullish uh, turnaround, no matter what. And it seems as though the markets are pretty much green across the board, regardless of any FUD coming out of Washington. Do you think that this is going to maintain and hold? I, I'm not so sure. Obviously, that can happen. A lot of people believe that Bitcoin is going to reach, you know, you know, the, the sort of ever elusive figure of 100K. And that may well happen, of course. Um, but if we look at uh, another common argument that people in the crypto story will often make is, you know, whatever whatever volatile price you witness within a short space of time, give it a day, a week or a month or even perhaps a year. If you zoom out and you look at the direction that Bitcoin has taken since its, since its birth, essentially, you will see or allegedly what you'll see is a line going from bottom left to top right. And that's not frankly necessarily very true. If you look at, you know, the, the, the max Bitcoin price chart, essentially, you will see a, a, a sharp increase um, from 2020 when we went on this massive bull run that sort of, you know, capped at about 60, um, 60K. And since then, you know, Bitcoin has never quite recovered to any, any place meaningfully close to that. Um, it could happen. I'm not saying it's not going to, um, but I think the jury is, is, is you know, firmly out on, on that judgment. You know, just talking about the price a little bit more. Look, I know that this is not financial advice. Everybody who's listening, we sure. are just, you know, some people that are just over here talking about this, but we do follow the news every day. So uh, mm -hmm. we are just, you know, see, talking about what we see. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk that 
Ethereum with this London hard fork is going to be the new, they called it the gateway crypto, that more people are getting into cryptocurrency, not because of Bitcoin, but because of Ethereum, because they're using uh, Ethereum for NFTs or uh, gaming. Axie Infinity has been on fire lately, um, minting NFTs, uh, online games, play and earn. You know, what do you think of the uh, Ethereum Bitcoin kind of, I guess, chatter that's going on in the space right now, because uh, what I'm hearing is people are looking at Ethereum and especially new people coming into the space more than they're looking at Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's that's true in many ways. Absolutely. And obviously the uh, the London hard fork, it fundamentally what it what it's what what its aim is to change the transaction fee structure of Ethereum. And that's something that is has long been an issue for the for Ethereum. And you could argue that it's been one of the biggest inhibitors for, in, for Ethereum actually seeing some more, let's say, wider mainstream adoption. What is interesting, of course, is Ethereum's price has not quite bumped since the hard fork actually came into play yesterday. But then again, you know, we talk about you know the volatility of, of, of cryptocurrencies. It may still, anyway, given that, be a little bit too early. Um, it's had a positive week of about 16% of an increase in its price. And as you say, a lot of people may be considering Ethereum as a gateway gateway crypto into the industry now because like you say you know there's there's so many different let's say crypto use cases that the people might be attracted to be they nfts or or wanting to play around with a wider world of decentralized finance you sort of need to work on the ethereum network and then you know the cryptocurrency goes hand in hand with that so absolutely what i do think though is that on wall street or in terms of like serious institutional investors i do think that bitcoin still has a, a significant market dominance in that regard um, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because they're two, you know, they're very different cryptocurrencies. They get compared to a lot because they're the two largest cryptocurrencies and the two most well-known cryptocurrencies. But fundamentally, they're very, very different. Yeah, I'm just looking at the 24-hour volume of Bitcoin and Ethereum, and I, it's not too far off. I mean, not mm-hmm. too far off by $8 billion. I mean, that's, <laughs> that seems like a little bit of money. But I mean, Bitcoin has a 24-hour volume of $36 billion and Ethereum's at 20 uh, was this called $29 billion? I mean, that mm. is pretty significant to see that Ethereum is basically holding its own in 24-hour mark or 24-hour volume compared to v- Bitcoin. Uh, before we go into yeah. our, our, our next topic, which is going to be Gary Ginsler and the SEC, uh, what other projects or tokens have uh, caught your eye this, this week? Uh, I've, Like I said, Axie Infinity caught my eye. Obviously, mm. Binance Coin has caught my eye. I'm always looking at Binance, but is there anything else that caught your eye this week? Yeah, well, there's a couple of other decentralized finance tokens that you guys suppose make the case, and this we have to be careful here about you know the differences between causation and correlation. But you can make the case that they're experiencing a bit of positive growth because of the London hard fork. Uh, one such example is Uniswap, which is up ten percent or eleven percent almost on the day, and up nearly thirty percent on the week. Um, so that that's certainly eye catching. That's one of the biggest movers this week in terms of the top fifteen or top ten cryptocurrencies by market cap. But again, other than that, I would sort of point to. I mean, you mentioned Binance Coin. Um, I'm looking at the list here as well. Dogecoin's having a pretty poor run right now, and so are a lot of the other meme meme coins. Let's say, like you know, maybe Dogecoin and um, SafeMoon as well. Actually, um, picked up an article about that earlier this week that they're not doing so well. I also want to mention Rune. Rune is on a tear as well. It's up like 50% uh, for, for the week, as we know that they experienced a couple hacks two weeks ago. They had a five million dollar hack, an eight million dollar hack. Uh, again, the Rune or the Thor Chain Foundation, they have funds in their accounts so they can cover those hacks and reimburse the the people who are providing liquidity that lost liquidity. So they got that money back. So I think confidence is coming back into Thor Chain. And well, um, they are up, like I said, 50% for the week. 
before we get into Gary Ginsler, and I don't know why I'm just going to push this one back, but I want to talk about the sure. infrastructure bill before Gary Ginsler, because I think that it uh, kind of relates to what we're talking about right now. And we're talking about Bitcoin and Ethereum and coins that are, um, you know, having their breakout moment right now, uh, coming out of this, I would say, sideways movement or baby bear, if you will. Maybe we should have make that a baby bear uh, token. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only token that goes up in a bear market. But um, the reason why I want to bring this up right now is I don't know if you caught this news and the people are talking about the infrastructure bill and proof of work and proof of stake. Ethereum, as we know, Ethereum 2.0 is going to go proof of stake. Bitcoin is obviously proof of work. What is going on with this proof of work, proof of stake argument that's happening in Washington, D.C. right now? The infrastructure bill proposal that's been pushed by Senator Portman and also Senator Warner um, only excludes proof of work mining. And it doesn't really, so crypto advocates say, doesn't do anything for software developers. And I'm actually just going to piggyback off of a tweet um, from our colleague, Jeff Roberts. Um, and he, he wrote on Twitter, what the hell? Imagine if Congress in the 1990s passed a law not to publish, uh, rather not to punish web developers, but then only applied it to those who use JavaScript. So that, I suppose, is a pretty good analogy. To, <laughs> to, yeah, that, that, that it's a good way of comparing, you know, the what, what, what the amendment or let's say what the bill, if this amendment is, is accepted, proposes to do and how many how many people it still captures and, you know, just the relatively small uh, groups of, of, of entities or of persons, let's say, that, that, that it captures. And a lot of people are obviously kicking and screaming about this bill. One of the things that I found particularly interesting is that, you know, I'm always quite keen on the, the ideological foundations of the crypto industry. And it's still very much, you know, libertarian at heart, let's say. There, there is still that sort of, you know, crypto OG presence is still sort of alive and well. There's a there's an interesting discussion going on now where a lot of a lot of those individuals are essentially saying compliance with this is is impossible, um, rightly or wrongly. They sort of revel in that fact in a sense, but then there are those who are perhaps outside of the crypto industry who who are not you know not not in any way sort of you know crypto enthusiasts let's say. And their simple response to that is you know if if you're saying compliance is impossible, that's not an argument for the industry. That's an argument against the industry. And I think that's a that's a really interesting angle that a lot of people are are talking about now. You know whether whether those crypto OGs, the you know the, the libertarian sort of group that that really are passionate about this industry, want to admit it or not. If they do want to embrace mainstream finance, they're going to have to play by some of the rules that exist in mainstream finance. And that's not me saying that this infrastructure bill is not without its problems. Far from it. That's definitely an interesting sort of clash that people are having now. If I, if I'm correct, uh, Steve Jobs didn't like JavaScript. <laughs> <Was that? laughs> so it would just, just totally totally just shut on. Um, Steve Jobs, you know, fine. Politicians are great at word jujitsu. That's great. Um, but what is this actually going to do for the crypto space? Look, we have already had uh, Lummis come out and with uh, other senators come out and try to change the word, wording of the bill, the original bill, and try to find broker and brokerage. Um, so they made a lot of progress there. And now this comes out and says proof of work and proof of stake. Look, is there a conflict there in, in wording and in language? I mean, if you already defined brokerage, and now you're talking about proof of stake. Are we just talking about basically uh, cap gains on interest earned? Or are we actually trying to make the idea of brokerage and custody and I guess uh, dev and I guess are we trying to make the process of holding and mining cryptocurrency more murky so that they don't actually have some set frameworks? I mean, perhaps I think that, you know, obviously there has been a lot of pushback broadly speaking, and I'm sort of just going to maybe take a bit of a bird's eye view here and, and obviously stick to the subject of the infrastructure bill, but take a bit more of a step back here. There's been a big pushback 
on cryptocurrency mining, generally speaking, over the last few months. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because of its massive consumption of energy. And this could very well be, I mean, we all know how politics works. It could very well be that there's a decision that's being made or that there are senators in Congress that, that don't want anything to do with this industry, essentially, to put it bluntly. And they're trying to nail it any way that they can. And perhaps the intentions are not necessarily as transparent as, as, as people may assume. I know that that, for example, is one major issue that Senator Warren has, has discussed, you know, several times um, and not without you know, reason. It, it is the case that cryptocurrency mining has a, a, you know, a, a large energy consumption and that corresponds to a, a pretty significant carbon footprint. So it could very well be this is ultimately speculation, but it could very well be an attempt to sort of quash an industry that is unwanted for a variety of reasons. And those all of those, the totality of those reasons don't necessarily come through in the legislation itself. I like how Congress and senators are talking about squashing certain industries and regulating certain industries. It reminds me of what happened just the other day. Uh, you know, they had all kinds of auto manufacturers uh, talking about EV markets at the White House mm -hmm. and they left out Tesla. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, is this what Congress is doing it. now? Picking and choosing what industries and what businesses and what companies are going to innovate for the future? I, I, I'm skeptical of this, you know, and, you know, one person that's going to be overseeing a lot of what is going to roll out in the future when it comes to cryptocurrencies and, and financial products is Gary Ginsler. Gary mm -hmm. Ginsler has made some very big words and made very big statements about the crypto space the past week. Uh, Dan, break that down for us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So over the last week, um, Gensler has has essentially spoken twice in terms of you know a high a high high profile platform, let's say, about crypto. So one was with an exclusive interview with CNBC, and the other was an address um, at the Aspen Security Forum. Um, and I I I paid I paid close attention to both of those um, those events, let's say. And he, you know, there's some key takeaways here. The, the first one, really, for me, is that he firmly believes that cryptocurrency needs consumer protection. He's not alone in that perspective. We've already mentioned. Elizabeth Warren, for an example here, um, who, who she actually previously said just a few days back as well, that crypto needs rules of the road in order for it to truly flourish, essentially. And I'll just read off a quote that he, um, I have the transcript of the CNBC interview here. He said, we're an investment protection agency, obviously with reference to the SEC there. And right now this asset class, Bitcoin, and the hundreds of other coins that investors are trading at is a speculative asset class. What we want to do is provide some of the basic protections against fraud and manipulation. And he's obviously not alone in that. There are many people that call sort of for the same thing. He also quite decisively said that some DeFi, DeFi platforms could be hosting securities and could essentially be unregistered securities. So he also addressed um, you know, the question of a Bitcoin ETF hitting the United States. Um, obviously, there are some Bitcoin ETFs. Um, there, there are several north of the border in Canada. And he actually said that he, he kept his cards relatively close to his chest during the CNBC segment. But back in June, he actually said, and I'll read again another quote, he said, I'm saying this in my own voice that the underlying Bitcoin cash markets, there's not a robust oversight that you have in the stock markets or in the derivatives markets. So I think that's him sort of pouring a bit of cold water on the hopes for a Bitcoin ETF. Obviously, when he when he you know became the SEC chair, a lot of people said, you know, this guy, he taught a course on blockchain and money in MIT, and he once wrote an op an op-ed um, on blockchain technology. So because of those two simple facts, the assumption was that he was going to be friendly to crypto. And that is far from necessarily the case. Um, he also said, you know, going a bit further into, into the rabbit hole here with Gensler, that cryptocurrency, no one single cryptocurrency actually fits the, uh, the standards to actually be considered money. He admitted that, you know, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, they've served as a catalyst for us 
thinking about digital payments in an ever digitizing society, but that is a, that's a far cry from actually considering cryptocurrencies money. And he also repeated some other concerns a lot of people have about crypto that they facilitate crime, that the, you know a lot of the time they're used to you know skirt existing legislation when it comes to anti-money laundering and fraud, tax collection, sanctions, things of that sort. I could go on forever, so I'm going to give you a chance to ask any other questions. But those are the key takeaways I had about Gary Gensler's words for the last few weeks. You waffled down for so long, I forgot all my questions, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I just want everybody to uh, know that this is all off the cuff, by the way. We didn't write some big script or take big notes before this. We we hopped on and and this is all off the top of our head. This is how much we're in the news day in and day out. And Scott, he hasn't he hasn't slept. You should see him. I'm not going to post the video, but he has bags under his eyes. He has Red Bull. That he's <laughs> laying in a sea of Red Bull and and power bars. It's, it's crazy This what this guy does. He just the keyboard warrior for the crypt, man. So we, we definitely appreciate it. I haven't slept for two weeks straight. It's two <laughs> weeks straight, man. You're, you're going to, we're going to have those pictures like, you know, uh, of Sam Bankman Freed of FTX sleeping on his floor with <laughs> peanut butter. That's going to be you, man. <laughs> that already is me. He was inspired by a picture he saw of me. <laughs> no, I think that's enough. Uh, we, we've covered pretty much the highlights of the week. Uh, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you com- coming on. Uh, I, the fact of the matter is, is that we really need to, we do need consumer protections. We do need to Absolutely. have framework frameworks for this uh, industry, but we don't want to stifle innovation and this industry. I think that it will be a very sh- big shame if lobbyists or the other lobbyists or a certain, I guess, personal feelings about this industry make regulations that slow it down or stifle it. And that's my, yeah, just, just my of personal course. opinion. Of course. And just to, to, to piggyback off of that, I do think just this is my own personal perspective. Um, so I guess we can take it or leave it, anybody who's listening. But I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Whenever we, we see a lot of people within the industry say this, that there is a, there's a necessary trade-off between regulation and protections that are, that are absolutely necessary and innovation. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that without... Yeah. That are, without the requisite regulations and consumer protections, then this industry will have a cap on its innovation and it will never see the mainstream. Once we actually have those things that are very necessary in place, then the door will open for you know a lot of the hopes that people in the industry continue to communicate. But that's just my opinion. Since we're throwing around opinions here, I, I think that regulation, what you just said, you know, once you have a framework, the, the industry can grow within you know th- mm. those those frameworks. Um, and I think that's something like Bitcoin. You know, a, a lot of the talk about Bitcoin is that it is made to be outside of the Fed, outside of the governments. It's about it's a peer to peer. You know, it's trustless and all this stuff. I feel that if you make a framework and Bitcoin works the way it's supposed to work, the evolution of the money markets or the evolution of the idea of a stable currency or a you know um deflationary currency or whatever you want to put on bitcoin uh, will come to fruition but it's going to take long a longer time span than say 12 years or 13 years of, of bitcoin being around uh, i think that mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see that bitcoin will be integrated into a system we'll see that it's doing what it's supposed to do over the next decades generations and it'll eventually become what everybody wants to become but i think that a lot of i would say bitcoiners not wanting regulation is trying to force the hand of what Bitcoin is supposed to be instead of allowing Bitcoin to naturally evolve to be what it's meant to be, if you know what I'm saying. I do. I do. I know what you're saying. But there's also what I would add to that is that there's a there's still a very significant, again, back to the, the, the role of ideology within the crypto industry. I think there's, a, there's still a very significant argument to be had between different camps about what Bitcoin actually should be in the first place. Um, True. If we if we look if we look at <laughs> yeah I mean if we look at Satoshi's white paper from you know Bitcoin's inception 
it, it really was framed as something that should have been an explicit rebellion against the existing financial services industry. Um, and there are many people that believe that and, and suggest that that is what Bitcoin should be and that's the role that it should play. If that is the case, then everything that we're discussing about consumer protection, regulation, and, and reaching the mainstream of financial services sort of falls away because it's not necessary to discuss that. It's meant to be explicitly something that is a rebellion against that industry and that world. If you think that's fine. If you don't, then of course those those discussions become more important and more necessary. Um, but again, you know, we, we we see loads of people discussing Bitcoin as to whether or not it should be a a, a currency. Look at what's happening in El Salvador. Uh, people that consider it a speculative asset class or a, a, a digital gold is something that obviously we hear from time to time as well. So you know, there's there's a lot to be said about what Bitcoin's role should be in society, and I don't think necessarily there's consensus there either. Got Tipolino, writer for Decrypt. Thanks for coming on the show and talking our weekend roundup. What, what are we calling this again? A week in review. Week in review. That's the one. I, I got to get this branding right or else <laughs> or it's going to flop already. Anyway, thanks, bro. No worries, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Deemer. Don't forget to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment. And DeemerForCongress.com, D-I-E-M-E-R for Congress.com. Washington is making the rules as we speak. Do you want advocates in Washington or not? Donate to my campaign to get advocates in Washington. And until tomorrow, weekend update. Happy hodling, everyone.